If you have one of the white or blue Bibles that we gave you, Acts chapter 18 is on page 540. So you can find it, 540. We finished Acts chapter 17 last week. Um, Pretty famous story in the scriptures. If you're not aware, that's okay. We'll do a little recap as we go through this. Um, But 18 is kind of this longer period of time for the Apostle Paul. We've been following him through uh, his second missionary journey. He does four in total uh, in your Bible, if you're not aware of that. That's okay, not a big deal. But uh, he kind of went on this loop uh, at the very beginning of his uh, ministry and kind of preaching the gospel around to all these areas. Spent some time back in Antioch, which was his home church. Visited the church in Jerusalem, which is obviously where the apostles of Jesus were all still hanging out, Peter and those guys, and then ended up coming back on the second trip. And so uh, we're going to finish up this second missionary journey this morning at the first part of Acts chapter 18. And we're going to see some unfamiliar circumstances going on in the life of Paul, things that he's kind of never had to deal with before. Uh, we're going to see like a time of transition. We're going to see a new relationship start to flourish. It's going to be very influential, instrumental in the growth of the church going forward. Uh, we're going to see some odd instructions from God. I don't know if you ever got a point where God tells you to do something. You're like, wait, what? That was weird. Uh, in a different season. Uh, and then a new habit that Paul starts at 47 years old that's going to end up being pretty influential. So let's jump into Acts chapter 18. Uh, Paul's traveling through modern day uh, Greece at the time. Actually, let's throw the map up here so we can get uh, where he is is going to matter later as we go on. So uh, these are not the names that you're usually associated with this part of the world. This is the northern end of the Mediterranean Sea, right? So this thing that says Asia in the middle of your map here uh, is modern-day Turkey, uh, but that's what they called it back in the day. Uh, and up kind of the top left corner, there's a little dot of a city called Troas. And on the purple line is actually the, the line that we're following as far as Paul's second missionary journey. But he ended up in Troas. And if you remember, he got a vision from God from a guy in Macedonia that said, come over and help us. And so basically the entirety of his ministry was like, we got to do what God told us to do. And so they sail across to Macedonia. You can see the top left corner of the screen there with the M's cut off, but that's Macedonia. We follow them through Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And, um, and there was probably five to 20 guys or women following him at this point in time. We don't really know. We do know that Luke was with him. Luke's obviously writing the book. We know Timothy was with him. We know Silas was with him. Then there's Paul. Uh, And then there's a few other guys that get mentioned in and out of different times. Like, hey, this guy got beaten because he was with them. It's like, oh, we haven't heard about that guy before. So anyway, there's, there's a group of them, and they're not all going on the same trip. Some of them jump in for a couple cities. Some of them jump out for a couple cities. But it's not just one guy. It's, it's a group. Get that in your mind. And um, we ended up in Philippi. If you remember, they got to Philippi. They preached there for a little bit, and they got thrown in prison, beaten, tortured, put in the stocks, and that wasn't great. But then God let them out uh, with an earthquake, so that was cool. Uh, but then the, the Leaders of the city asked them to leave town, so they left Philippi, went to Amphipolis, Apollonia, then to Thessalonica. They were preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. People got saved, but then they started a, the Jews who were jealous started a riot, ended up uh, threatening Paul's life, and so 
They had to sneak Paul and Silas out in the middle of the night to get them out of Thessalonica. They didn't get to stay as long as they wanted. Then they went down to Berea, a uh, very fruitful ministry in Berea, preaching the gospel. But again, these guys from Thessalonica who were trying to murder Paul came down to Berea, started this big riot. And so they had to sneak Paul onto a boat in the middle of the night. And he, instead of just going the next town over like they did when they went from Thessalonica to Berea, they're like, get out of here. So he put him on a boat and he went all the way down to Athens, right? So Athens is down here, right? Berea was up there. And he ends up in Athens, which is where we saw him last week. And he preached one of the most famous messages that we've, that kind of is in your New Testament. Um, preaching to Athens was interesting because he used a lot of cultural examples, quoted a bunch of um, Phyllis philosophers. I don't know why that was hard for me to say, but it was. He quoted some philosophers, some poets, things like that. Um, but they basically laughed him off stage in Athens. So then he goes over to Corinth, which is where we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. So here we go. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Claudius is the emperor, uh, or Caesar would kind of be the way we would say it now. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So we have this new married couple entering into the history here, Aquila and Priscilla. And there's a couple things about this married couple worth pointing out. First, they are fairly unique as a married couple working together for the gospel. There's not a lot of married couples in your Bible that are represented as working together for the gospel. Right? Paul's a single guy apparently at this point. Timothy's a single guy at this point. We don't have a lot of married people working side by side for the furtherance of the gospel. So this is a cool picture if you're married and you're like, hey, me and my husband or me and my wife need to get on the same page and start working towards something, not only with our family, but for the furthering of the kingdom of God. They're a great example of that. Second, there's not, um, they end up being like crucial in this in this ministry of Paul. Later on, he's going to talk about them. They end up being mentioned seven times in your New Testament in four different books that Paul writes to them. And so we just see this like longevity and the depth of this relationship is really interesting. Another interesting thing about Aquila and Priscilla is we aren't really told when they come to follow Christ. We aren't told like Paul starts to preach the gospel and they believe and so they're saved. Like they just kind of like Start, Paul shows up. He's by himself because remember, he had to get on a boat in the middle of the night from Berea so he wouldn't get murdered. And apparently, whatever those circumstances were, I don't know if you've ever snuck out of anywhere, right? Don't sneak out of anywhere, kids. It's bad. But like, if you sneak out of some places, the last thing you're worried about is like getting everybody out, right? You're like, I'm getting out. Like, let's go. And so I don't know what the circumstances were, but he got on this boat and either there wasn't room for Timothy or maybe Timothy thought that they were uh, safe where they were, but he ended up alone in Athens. So he was kind of waiting for uh, Timothy and Silas and the rest of the guys to show back up. And he doesn't have these friends and income, Apollos, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and they end up, like, befriending him. They're the same trade, right? They're tent makers, so they're making tents, which is probably a useful skill. Everybody probably had a tent. Like, lots of these people didn't live in, like, 
stick houses like we have today. So uh, tents were a big time thing. And we're told that the reason uh, Aquila and Priscilla are in Corinth is because they got kicked out of Rome. Okay, so it seems like they were some sort of either believers. Uh, my guess is they were probably believers, and they ended up getting kicked out of Rome. We're, we're told from extra biblical sources, so like Roman historians, that Claudius, Emperor Claudius, got real upset because the Jews uh, were arguing amongst themselves all the time. Now, picture this from a Roman emperor standpoint. You wouldn't know, necessarily know the difference between a Jew and a Christian. They both read the Old Testament. They both go to synagogue. Just one group of them says this Christ guy is a big deal, and the other people are really mad about it, right? So they get into all these fights, and Claudius is like, out of here, all of you, all you Jews who are arguing over all this stuff, get out of here. So all the Jews got kicked out uh, about, I think it was like 80 AD or something like that. That might not be correct, but Claudius kicked them all out, and actually this was 50 AD, so that was way off. So Strike that from the record, okay? So anyway, you don't care. So we, they all end up leaving Rome, and that's where Aquila and Priscilla end up. And so uh, it's, it's an interesting kind of circumstance, right? They are leaving because of an uncomfortable situation. They're getting kicked out of their home. Paul is kind of in an uncomfortable circumstance. He's all by himself in a place that he hasn't been all by himself on this whole trip yet. And they meet up. They are not only God-fearing people, loving God together, believing in the Old Testament scriptures, but they both make tents together. And it ends up being this really incredible partnership. And Paul ends up moving in with Aquila and Priscilla because he's there by himself. It's interesting that maybe Paul wouldn't have been as open to the friendship budding like it did if Silas and Timothy were there with him, right? If he had his good buddies around him, maybe he doesn't reach out to live in somebody's house as easily, or, or maybe this thing just doesn't take off like it, like it ended up doing. It's interesting how often God brings the exact right people into your life at the exact right time. Anybody ever had that happen? Nobody. Okay, well, let me tell you about it. God very often brings incredible relationships right when you need those types of relationships. God often brings great wisdom into your life through relationships right when you need that kind of wisdom. It happens over and over and over again. And you think, man, if that would have happened at a different time or when I, like this happens over and over and over and over again. God is really good at doing this. But... There's a huge but here. God puts, somebody laughed. That was not, in, I wouldn't, I'm not a youth pastor anymore. I need to be more careful with what I say. God puts the right people in your life at the right time. But I also know the history of humans is that we are historically terrible at making the choices when it comes to who we associate with. God puts these right people in our lives and we're like, I'm going to go do something else. And there's this person here that's like, man, you, as a pastor, I see all the time, I'm like, this people over here, you should be friends with these people. They'd be so good for you. And they just don't want to do it. And we all know that humans are bad at this, but we deceive ourselves into thinking that we grow out of it. Right? Like we all know that when you're kids, you make bad choices. How many people have chosen bad friends when they were kids? right? All of us, right? We choose bad friends or your kids choose bad friends and it's so clear to see. And like, then we think we grow out of it. We don't grow out of it because 
It happens all the time. Megan and I will be hanging out with some single guy or some single girl, and we'll be like, hey, what are you doing? They're like, I really want to find a wife, or I really want to find a husband. And then they're like, what about this person that's incredible, that's right in front of you, that loves Jesus? And, no, their feet are too big. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I'm on eHarmony. I got this bad boy with a leather jacket and rides a motorcycle. He should love Jesus. No, he doesn't love Jesus. Like, not that any of those things are bad, but I'm just saying, like, so, like, we don't grow out of it. You think you grow out of it. You don't grow out of it. And then you get to be 40, and you're like, oh, there's these great people we should invest in. Let's just binge a Netflix episode instead. All right, let's just stay home. Let's just, oh, these people have a little more money and in a little nicer part of town. It would be cool to be associated with them. We should build our friendships on these, right? And we, we think we grow out of it, and we don't. And, and, and here's one that I see all the time. After 10 years as a youth pastor, you would be shocked at how many supposedly mature Christians have no intention of encouraging their kids to hang out with a youth pastor. Like, did I miss something here? Is there an abundance of adults who are loving on and encouraging and praying for your children and encouraging them to seek Jesus? Are those people, like, just growing on trees that we could just be like, Stop praying for my kid. Stop telling them to read the Bible. Stop encouraging them to love Jesus. Like, is there so many of those folks walking around that like when a church hires a youth pastor, we're like, you know, it's like an eight-minute drive to get to church. And it's a Tuesday. I don't know if Tuesday is going to work for us. Like, it blew my mind for 10 years as a youth pastor watching people invest in all these things, encouraging their kids to go all these different directions except for this incredible relationship that was offered to them. Just sidebar, and then I'll get off my soapbox, old youth pastor soapbox. But, like, those things matter. Like, when your kids go through something and you think that your kids are better than they are, like, I'm sorry, you think that, right? You think that you know more about your kids than you do. And you think that when your kids go through something real serious, you're going to know. How many of you held real serious things back from your parents? Yeah, so just having one other safe adult who loves Jesus and hopefully will point them in the right direction, that's huge, that's huge. I can't tell you how many times kids came to me. It was like, hey, this is what's going on. And I was like, do your parents know? And they're like, kind of. That's a no, right? <laughs> okay, soapbox rant over. So often we don't invest in the people that God puts in front of us that we should or encourage our kids to invest in the people that God has put in front of us right? And God is faithful. He puts incredible relationships in our path over and over and over again, and so often we don't do it. And I can't help but wonder, it's not in here, maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, but maybe Paul being by himself helped this, him realize like, hey, like this is a relationship I need to press into with Aquila and Priscilla. Maybe as we start a new year, maybe you're doing New Year's resolutions over the next week, maybe you start to think about, hey, there's some people we need to invest in. Maybe, maybe there's some relationships we need to press into. Anyway, there's something else I want to point out in the first few verses here. And it's something that I was interested in because of what happened in the account last week. Last week, Paul preached in Athens and completely changed his method of preaching. 
very noticeably from other messages that Paul preached. He didn't use scripture references. Um, he talked about biblical truth, but he used a lot of cultural adaptation. He says, hey, I was walking around. I noticed this on the street. I saw this poem by this guy that you guys write about in Corinth like, or in Athens. He, he totally changed how he did his, his message. And I wondered about this because many Christians in 2021 have taken Acts chapter 17 and they've said, you know what? Paul did it, so we should make our whole ministry just about this. And we do like movie series for our, our Sunday mornings, you know, and we're like all about the culture and like we're doing like videos of things. And I'm not saying any of that's bad, but I am wondering if Paul is like turning over a new leaf. I was kind of wondering, like, hey, Paul, like, you quoted a whole bunch of philosophy and, like, like culturally sensitive material last week. Is this, like, the new Paul? Are you going to, like, do a whole new thing? And we'll look at what Paul does in Acts 18. It doesn't look like he thinks he stumbled into the next great ministry. Right? It doesn't look like he changed everything. It doesn't look like he walked into the next thing. He's like, oh, this whole not reading the Bible thing, this is the way to go. No, he went into the synagogues. He reasoned from the scriptures. He was talking to Jews and Greeks. And, and, and while I do there, think that there will always be seasons and circumstances where we have to pay extra special attention to contextualizing the gospel, like we talked about last week, uh, it didn't replace the word of God as the foundation of Paul's ministry. He didn't abandon the word of God and start now just quoting philosophy and, and scientific books or, or whatever, right? He didn't, he didn't completely abandon the word of God. And it almost seems like he was more committed to the word of God than he was previously. In verse 5, it says that Paul was occupied with the word. That word is usually translated as seized, like something is like grabbed a hold. It's like the word of God, like grabbed a hold of Paul's spirit, right? And Timothy and Silas showed up. It says Paul's occupied with, like it's grabbed a hold of him. The word of God is like grabbed his soul. It's like, it's like a whole new intensity almost. You ever done something where you like, you do it and it kind of doesn't work out the way you want it to. And you're like, I'm never doing that again. Maybe you tried something new or different and you're like, I can't help but wonder if maybe that happened with Paul. He gets laughed off a stage in Athens after doing kind of a new thing, and he's like, I'm not doing it. Forget that. I'm going back to the word of God. The foundation is, is going to be the word of God. My vision will be teaching the word of God. Another interesting thing to point out about Paul's arrival in Corinth is Paul shows up to Corinth and has to find a place to stay and get a normal job and goes to work. I don't know what I thought it would look like when Paul showed up in Corinth, but I thought it would look a little different than that, right? This is a guy who wrote two-thirds of your New Testament, right? If the Apostle Paul showed up at our church, we'd be like, the Apostle Paul's here. Really? You here, right? Like, I mean, there would be all sorts of like special privileges. That we, who, anybody here got next room the Apostle Paul can sleep in? Everybody's like, I'll move out of my house, right? Like, we would be so floored that this one of the most famous people in the history of the world is showing up. And yet, that's not what happens when he shows up in Corinth. He shows up and crashes in a spare bedroom at Aquila and Priscilla house and works a job. And 
he didn't have a lot to compare to, but when we see the other apostles in the New Testament, we don't see this type of interest. Like, Peter, when he goes places in Jerusalem, he's very well respected. People are like, that's the apostle Peter. He was friends with Jesus. That's him. You know, the Catholics call him the first pope, right? So, like, he gets, like, all this very special treatment. We see that, like, him eating with special people and kind of separate. Like, Paul doesn't do that. Paul shows up to town and, like, has to get a job and sleep on the floor, and eat ramen noodles probably until he figures it out. Like, that's, that's kind of a, an incredible thing. I wonder what Paul would think if we tried to put, like, a big robe and a fancy hat on him, right? If, like, Paul showed up and, like, Paul, we got this little glass bubble that you're going to drive around, and it's called the Pope Mobile. It's incredible, and you just wave like this. Paul would be like, what? No, no, bigger hat, taller, right? Like, white robe, super clean. He's like, I make tents. I sleep in spare bedrooms on the floor. It's, it's completely different than kind of what we've made it into. If we tried to have Paul live in the Vatican with like the gold halls and the marble statues, like it just doesn't seem to fit with what we see in the scriptures. And he's doing it because he followed Jesus, who came as a humble servant, right? His followers are called to serve, not to be served. And I've heard it said that the truest test of whether or not you are a servant is how you react when people treat you like one. I'm servant. Let people treat you like one. See how that goes. Right? Because we all think we're more servant until somebody's like, do this, go over there. I'm not appreciative. And then you're like, right? And Paul could have easily showed up in town and been like, hey, you think Pope Peter has to sleep in a spare bedroom on the floor? You think Pope Peter's making tents? He didn't do that. So Paul, as we see him arrive in Corinth, is working as a tent maker, staying with Aquila and Priscilla, spending his weekends at the synagogue, disputing with the Jews about Jesus being the Messiah. And after a while, many of the Jews become Jesus followers, and the rest get more and more hardened to the idea of following Jesus so that going to the synagogue is just no longer productive for Paul. And look at verse 6. When they opposed, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul has given them many opportunities uh, in the synagogue to believe in Jesus, to become Jesus followers. And at some point, it just becomes clear that Paul keeps reaching out to them. And these Jews simply do not want to follow Jesus and be saved. So Paul moves on. One of my favorite pastors compared being a pastor uh, to being a flight attendant at the beginning of the flight. Like you're showing people information that could save their life and they don't care. Right? Like, oh, yeah. Like, and then when the plane starts to go like this, you're like, you should have listened to me when I told you, right? But we're like, well, this is how the buckle goes in. Nobody's caring. They got their iPads and stuff. Like, that's kind of what it's like for Paul. Paul's like preaching the gospel. He's like, get out of here. You're bothering us. Like, we don't want to hear about your Jesus thing. And there's a point where it no longer makes sense to preach the gospel to these people who are opposed to it. 
And, and Jesus talked about it in his teachings as well. He says, do not throw pearls before swine. Don't throw precious jewelry, jewelry in the mud with the pigs. At some point, if people keep rejecting the message, we are to recognize this, and it's no longer productive for us. And it's at this point, I usually counsel people, they tell, what do I do? My brother never listens to me, or my family doesn't want to listen, or my coworker, or my boss. No, just live out the gospel now. Like, if you've done your job and said the gospel, if you've preached it, if you've said it to them with words and made it as clear as you possibly can, and they got nothing to do with it, and they made it clear they want to do it, just live it out. Love one another above yourselves, right? Preach with the way you live. And, and it doesn't matter if you have a conversation or two or a hundred, and it's clear they're just not in any way open to it. Start, shut your mouth for a little bit and just live it out, okay? Situations like these are usually great times to live out the principles. And I'm talking about like New Year's and times like this. You're all getting kind of mixed matched with different family and friends that you never have. Right? Great times to live out the gospel more than preach the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand because some of you are going to go, whew, pressure's off. I don't got to preach the gospel. Good, because I don't want to say anything because I don't think I know enough. I'm glad. Uh, that's not what it said. Okay? So don't, don't misunderstand me. Like, there is a point where you should stop preaching and just start living out the gospel principles. But most of us are not even close to that point. Most of us haven't said enough. Look at what Paul just was told by God in the middle of the night. Go on speaking and do not be silent. Okay, so the message I just told you about like there is a point, right? It doesn't let you off the hook. It doesn't mean like, hey, don't tell anybody. Paul had the hard conversations with the Jews. They had rejected it. And then Paul moved on, but he kept speaking the gospel to others. Don't let this passage ever keep you from speaking the gospel or having the hard conversation in the first place, because that's not the intention. Verse 12, look at it. But when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, so maybe he was Crispus's replacement, I don't know, uh, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallo paid no attention to any of this. So Paul, Paul gets this vision from God that he's going to be safe, and these Jews arrest him, and Paul's probably thinking, here we go again, right? Going to get beaten, going to get thrown in prison. I thought you said nobody would hurt me, God. What are you doing? And just as Paul is about to open his mouth and defend himself, the Roman proconsul says, this is stupid, let him go. It, like, this is incredible. Paul's like, get out of here. Mistrial, go away. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Paul's like, I'm free. And he takes off, which is awesome. I love when God does stuff like that. Like when he takes care of stuff that he told you he would take care of. We're always like, God, are you going to do what you said you're going to do? Because I'm ready to fix it for you if you need my help. And God's like, I don't need your help. I don't need you to do what I told you I was going to do. And God gives us that gentle reminder. I don't need you to do this for me. Even to the Apostle Paul, who's seen God come through over and over and over and over again. God's kind of like, Paul, remember, I got this. I'll take care of it. And it says that Paul stayed in Corinth for another year and a half. And then look at what happens in verse 18. 
After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So he leaves Greece. Let's throw the map. Oh, the map's up there. Well done, sound guy. Um, he leaves Greece, which is modern day over here, right? And he sails now across to Ephesus, okay? Now, this is maybe a little bit bigger of a deal than you realize. We'll talk about it in a second. But Aquila and Priscilla go with him. So this relationship that he built there over the last year and a half has deepened to the point where they're now traveling along with him. And look at the end of verse 18. And at century he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Right? So he goes to Ephesus and then he sails down. Antioch would be down here somewhere, um, which is his home church. So he kind of returns home. Right? We've, so he goes to Ephesus. We've been there. Megan and I have actually been there. It's an incredible place, right? We've stood in front of the library and looked at the amphitheater where Paul's actually going to spend more time later. It's pretty incredible to walk on the streets that the Apostle Paul most likely walked on. Spent a long time there. Uh, he did. Uh, and then he ended up going down to uh, Antioch where he spent a huge chunk of his life, like probably over 10 years, which is like his home church. But then look what he happens. Verse 23, and after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So in this 23 verses that we've covered this morning, it spans about two years in the Apostle Paul's life, which is a little bit different than what we've been doing. We've been doing like really short sections. This is a bigger period of his life. And there's a lot from the big picture perspective that's happening in this two years. There's these new godly relationships we already talked about with Aquila and Priscilla. There's a new season, largely without opposition, like a year and a half, not being in a riot, not being thrown in jail. Like that's pretty good for Paul. It's been pretty uh, opposed up till then. Um, he endured hostile opposition for a long period of time. So this is kind of new for him. He's like, hey, year and a half, being able to move around freely in the city, that's great. And then there's two other really big transitions happening in Paul's life that I want to point out. First is the end of something that is very important to Paul. If you remember back when Paul and Silas started off on this journey, we talked about it at the beginning of this message. They were in Troas, right? And they got a vision from God. And the vision had a guy from Macedonia across the Aegean Sea, come help us. I don't know if you've ever felt like God gave you a clear, specific word, but it's very, very energizing, like, like, even, like, small words like this, like, when you come to church and you, like, leave church, you're like, I feel like God spoke to me. You've experienced that, right? You're like, let's go. Like, I'm ready. This happened to Paul in an incredible way, a vision that was very clearly from God. And it was like, go to Macedonia. So Paul is like, let's go. And he, like, talks to his guys who are with him. and like, we're going to Macedonia. This is what God showed me. And so here they go. And they get to Philippi. And they preach for a little bit. And then they get thrown in prison. But it's okay, God lets them out of prison, but then the rulers of the city are like, get out of here. So like, 
Oh, well, that was shorter than we hoped. So they go to Thessalonica, and they're like, let's do it. And they preach for a little bit, and then there's an angry mob that tries to murder Paul. And they're like, hey, you guys got to go. And they sneak him out at night. It's like, well, that didn't last very long. Then they get to Berea, and they're like, come on, preach the gospel. People are getting saved. And then they're going to kill Paul again, so they got to sneak him onto this boat. And if you see on the map, when you go from Berea down to Athens, I think that might have had something to do with Paul's attitude when he got to Athens and why he left Athens so quickly. He was probably pretty bummed that this Macedonian call ended up being three places that kicked him out way sooner than he wanted to be. It was probably only like a six-week uh, period of time from the vision that he had from Troas to when he ends up in Athens. It's like, hey, God's called me to this. It didn't really work like I hoped in Philippi. It didn't really work like I wanted to do this. It didn't really work like I wanted to in Berea. And then I'm, you see the Acacia, the green province down there? That's a different Roman province than Macedonia. So when he gets to Corinth, he's like next to Macedonia, but he's not in Macedonia anymore. I don't know if you ever had to reconcile that. Like I was really sure God told me to do this, and now it didn't work like I thought it should work. It didn't happen like I wanted it to happen. It didn't look like I wanted it to look. It's, it's a transition of a season in Paul's life. And he spends a year and a half in Corinth, and he's, he's next to Macedonia. I mean, there's a little solace in that, like, hey, I could still go right over there. I could go over the border if I needed to. Maybe, maybe I'm just supposed to go a little bit over the border. But it seems like God is, like, reminding Paul, stay here. He gives him another vision. Hey, you're going to be fine. Stay here, though, because there's many people in this city that are mine, and I want you to preach to. And it's like this transition of a season for Paul. Like his vision was so clear with the Macedonian call, and now he's no longer in Macedonia, and he's probably trying to wrestle. And when he sets sail in verse 18 and goes now back across the Aegean Sea, it's kind of like this vision is gone now. It's over. The Macedonian call is done. Like, I'm leaving the land I was so sure that God had called me to. And it went okay, but it didn't go quite like I thought it would. And I think that's why God sent Paul that other vision. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Stay in the city. I'm with you. And it seems like Paul is indirectly given a new vision in the second vision from God, in verse 18. Because Paul was probably like, Macedonia, Macedonia, Macedonia. And then God gives him this vision. What's he say? He says, there are many people in this city who are mine. And it says in verse 23, now at the end, as he gets back around down to Antioch, he starts doing this thing where he goes from city to city, strengthening and encouraging the disciples. So Paul could have easily put his life on cruise control. He'd been like, hey, I did the Macedonian thing. Didn't work out like I thought, but hey, we're good now. But he gets this kind of new vision as he's realizing God already has people here. I just got to find them. I just got to encourage them. I just got to pour into them. I just got to invest in them. And then he starts going from place to place, looking for the people that God has in each of these cities. He continues, and this is the way we would say it as a church, making disciples. Right? That's our vision as a church, right? As Jesus left, the last thing he said to his disciples before he left is, go make disciples. Right? So to be a disciple, you got to continue making disciples, right? 
friends of mine recently we had over for dinner, they're like, we're making disciple makers, right? That's a good way to look at it, right? We're making people who are making disciples. And if you think the Christian life is just about being a good person, then this vision from God makes no sense to you, right? If God came down and was like, hey, Jared, uh, keep preaching the gospel and be a good person, Okay, that's what my plan was. And I have a lot of people in this city that are mine. I don't care. I'm just trying to be a good person. Why would I care if there are people here that are yours? But if you're making disciples, that's an incredible gift of God to remind you of. Right? If you feel like your call from God is to make disciples, then him telling you beforehand, I have people there, you go find them, is an incredible encouragement, right? What if God was speaking that to you on this last Sunday of 2021? What if this wasn't for Paul? What if this was for you? Hey, I have many people at your workplace who are mine. Would that change how you walked in there and had those conversations? I have, I have many people at your school who are mine. I have many people that shop at your grocery store, that stand in the line at your bank, that live in your neighborhood, on your street, on your block, that are mine. Right? We're so nervous to have these conversations so often. Right? Well, I don't know. If I talk to the neighbor, he's kind of weird, and he puts his trash cans out over my property line, which kind of bums me out, you know? And, like, he doesn't really shovel the snow on the day you're supposed to. He waits, like, six days, and then it gets all tracked down. So, like, you know, we have these things that we, like, make up that why we don't like these other people or why we wouldn't talk to these other people. And what if the message of God to us this morning was like, no, no, no. I have many people in your life, you just got to go find them. When I tell you to go and make disciples, like you, the pressure's not on you. The pressure has already been taken off. I know who my people are. I'm going to put them in front of you. You just go live your life and look for them. The way we've broken it up as a church is we call it this. Our disciple-making process is four steps. Help people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference. What if we rephrase this call this morning and said, there are many people whom God has put in your life who is calling you to be a part of them, knowing him, finding their freedom, discovering their purpose, and making a difference in the world. Does that energize anybody else? I'm like ready to go. I'm like talking on the street like, hey, who are you? Do you like, let's do this. Right? Like, hey, do you know God? What are you struggling with? Oh, I got this sin. I can't get out of my... Let me help you. Let me walk with you through this. Let me help you in the repentance. I'll, if you want to confess to me, I'll pray for you. Like, let's do this. You know what you're really good at? You know what you maybe not have thought is your calling in this world? You're incredible at this organizing thing. Or you talk to people and it feels like they just gave you a spiritual hug. Or you, like, people follow you. Like, you have an energy. Or like, you are wise and you don't... Like, here's your purpose. Now let's go make a difference. Let's go change this world. If you're not making disciples, then this vision would not make any sense. God's saying like, hey, there's many people in my city, who, in this city who are mine. You'd be like, so? Right? But because Paul is about making, that's why Megan and I came to Spokane. Right? Some people frame their like, ministry in ways that is a little bit weird. They're like, we're going to go save the city. 
God saves the city. Right? When, when Megan and I felt like God was saying, like, hey, Spokane, it was because there was people here that God dearly loved that needed a Bible-teaching church, and we were dumb enough to do it. Right? <laughs> it's like, hey, there's people here who love me, who need to be encouraged by the word of God, who are my people, who I'm going to reach. Would you go? And it's not like he's in our debt or anything like that. Like, he has blessed us above and beyond over and over and over again. But, like, that's why we came, because God called us to love on you guys, right? Because God was like, hey, there's some families here that I, I want to love on and, and hear the word and be in a community together. And so maybe this changes your vision of mission just a little bit. Okay, I'm, I went a little long on that. Here's where I want to finish. It's the last Sunday of 2021. Another year gone that we'll never get back. And people do these New Year's resolutions things. Maybe you've heard of them, right? And they, uh, they have to... They want to have a better 2022 than 2021. And it's not actually in your text, but we know from history that Paul did this weird thing during this year and a half that he was in Corinth. A thing that, to our knowledge, he'd never done before. Right? He's sitting there, right? His Macedonian call is kind of like shriveling up in his heart. He felt like, I was called to Macedonia. Like, I didn't get to spend much time there. And then Timothy and Silas showed up, and we know Timothy ends up back in Thessalonica. So he's like telling him, like, Thessalonica is incredible. The church is blowing up. It's like all this incredible stuff going on. Paul's like, I want to go back, but God told me to stay here. And he's like probably wrestling through these emotions. So what he does is he sits down, and for the first time that we know of, he writes a letter to the church. To the church in Thessalonica, just to encourage him, just to bless him. And that letter ended up in your Bible. It's the book of 1 Thessalonians. Right? So Paul had, no, I don't know if he'd never thought about this before, but at this point in time, he's about 47 years old, is our best guess. Right? Never done this before. He said, you know what? I'm going to write a letter to these people. He ends up writing a letter. And then after that, he writes another letter. And after that, he writes another letter to a different church. And after that, he writes another, and ends up that about two-thirds of your New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul in letters to churches. Most of them he had been to. Some of them he had never been to. And by the end of his life, he ends up writing a letter to the church in Rome. And at the end of that letter, we're told that Aquila and Priscilla have actually moved back to Rome. Right? So he writes this letter to a church he's never been to. And he says, you know what? I'm going to explain the gospel to them. And the book of Romans is one of the most clearly and succinctly and well thought out articulations of the gospel that you'll find in the entirety of scripture. And it all started when a 47-year-old man starts a new habit because he's in Corinth for a little longer than he thought he'd be. And he wanted to go back to Macedonia, but he couldn't. So he writes him a letter and started this new thing. Just a little new thing. Just wrote a little letter. Ended up with a new relationship with Aquila and Priscilla. Ends up writing a letter to their church in Rome later. And ended up being probably one of the most foundational books in your entire Bible. Martin Luther, if you asked him, would probably say Romans was the most important book of the Bible. It's why we're not in a Catholic church right now and I don't have a big hat on right now. Right? It's because of the Protestant Reformation from the book of Romans. Like, you never know what it turns into. Maybe God puts a new friendship in your path this year. Maybe God starts you a new habit this year. Maybe you're a little older than you thought, and you're like, I'm going to do this new thing, and it ends up being turned into something like the book of Romans. Maybe it starts reaching people you never thought it would reach. 
Maybe you start doing things in a way you never thought you'd do them before. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I do know that as Paul transitions out of this Macedonian call phase of his life, he now starts going place to pace, strengthening people with the gospel, finding the people of God who are already in the places he's going to. And it changes his, his vision of ministry completely. So uh, I went a little long. I apologize. Let's go ahead and pray as we finish. Father, I thank you for your word and, uh, and what we see you doing in the life of Paul. And maybe it just gives us a little encouragement, Lord, uh, to view our workplaces or our schools or our communities uh, or our recreation in a different light um, in ways that can be used to make disciples or, or maybe new habits that you want to start in 2022. Uh, I don't know what 2022 is going to look like uh, for all of us. Maybe it's a transition of, of a direction in our life that died and, and a new direction that, that is birthed, Lord. Or maybe it's a new season of hope for us or, or clarity. I don't know, but you do. And you are faithful to do the things that you say you'll take care of, Lord. So I pray that we trust you in those things, Lord. I thank you for every single heart you've brought uh, this morning. I pray that they would receive encouragement by your spirit from your word. And that you would just lead us, Lord. And thank you for 2021, Lord. Even though in some instances it was really hard and difficult and uh, stretching, Lord, uh, at the end of it we can still say that you are good. And uh, we're thankful for that. Amen.